0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller.
1: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and
0: Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com podcast. All right, it is Prime Day today. And tomorrow for Amazon doesn't mean that much for me, but apparently I am uh, one of the outliers. U.S. shoppers will spend $12 billion online in two days. Uh, let's get the skinny on that with Poonam Goyle, Senior U.S. Retail Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Poonam, give us a sense for Prime Day. It's we're in such a weird, you know, the past 15 months have been such a weird time for all of us. Everybody's uh, behavior has been disrupted. Give us a sense of how important Prime Day is to an Amazon you know, maybe 2021 versus last year?
2: Sure. Thanks, Paul. So Prime Day is obviously very important for Amazon. It's expected in our view to bring in about $12 billion in gross merchandise sales that's both from third party and first party. Um, Now, what's interesting here and why it's important is because Amazon Prime Day is when Amazon gets to sell more of its own inventory. So if you think about the Amazon business, more than half of the business is from third party. But on Amazon Prime Day, two-thirds of the business is Amazon's owned business. So that's why it's so important. It's great for them because it's um, they get to promote some of their own products. The other thing is they get to bring on more Prime members. So Prime members today, we have over 200 million Prime members with the U.S. having about two-thirds of the U.S. population households each having a Prime member in there. So opportunity to grow that is where Prime Day helps, where deals are promoted. And consumers who are not Prime members can join Prime, which then creates a more stickier customer for them in the longer term.
1: And I wonder how much this has grown with Amazon, because revenue growth at Amazon has been off the hook. We're talking about a company that made less than 200, way less than 200 billion in revenue in 2017. And they're going to make about 500 billion in revenue this year. So um, have we seen Prime Day revenue grow at the same pace?
2: We've actually seen it grow much faster than that. So using the same time frame that you just used, in 2017, Prime Day sales were 2.4 billion dollars and we're expecting 12 billion this year. So that's a six-fold wow. increase almost.
0: Putum talk to us about the other side of the equation, the supply side getting stuff to people's doors. We keep hearing lots of stories about supply chain disruptions and boy when I think about a a company that really relies upon a global supply chain, it's amazon.com. What are they telling you about being able to get stuff to people's doors?
2: You know, it hasn't been called out as a hiccup yet, and nor do we see it. But what I have personally seen and I've heard from people is that, you know, the one-day, the two-day delivery that you're used to expecting, maybe it doesn't come in one day anymore, anymore, some items. Maybe they take two or three days. But they're still getting them out there, you know. If, if anyone can do it, we think it's Amazon. They're pretty diversified in how they ship. They use carriers, but they also have their own trucks and fulfillment networks that help them. So we think Amazon can still, you know, go past those bottlenecks. We haven't seen um, those constraints impact them like we have some other companies in retail.
1: By the way, Poonam, not I, I, not totally related to this story, but I always wonder cars. when I look at other no no <laughs> no no cars. Man, uh, the wait there is getting really long for cars and motorcycles. But you know, a lot of times I'll choose Amazon instead of many other online vendors because I want my stuff now. Um, and I'm probably just a horrible person, but I guess other people probably feel the same way. Are, are other vendors, are other online sites hurrying up to try and match that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Walmart and Target, I'd say, are are both playing in the space more aggressively than they ever have in the past. They now have programs where you can get same-day delivery, whether it's through Walmart Plus or whether it's to sh- through ship it at Target. So you can get... Um, things to your door the same day today in retail across many other larger retailers. But once again, the inventory there may be a little more limited um, than it is on Amazon because they don't necessarily have everything that they have available online for same day delivery or even next day.
1: All right. Uh, it's a great topic because more and more of us, well, it touches so many. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot more, obviously, than it did in 2017, 2019. Um, and, it, and it looks like it's pretty sticky. Poonam uh, is a great person to talk to. She's our senior U.S. retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So she knows all there is to know about this fascinating and growing story. Um Well, and hopefully it continues to grow because that means the economy does as well. So that's the story on Prime Day. Get acquainted with it. It's here to stay, Paul, and spreading really around the world. This is Bloomberg.
0: Right now, let's go to Omar Aguilar, CIO of Passive Equity Multi-Asset Strategies for Charles Schwab Investment Management. He joins us. Omar Thanks so much for joining us. I, you know, when I think about Charles Schwab, I just think of, you know, just the army of individual investors out there, the retail investors uh, that trade on your platform. What are you hearing most from the average, if you have a Charles Schwab investment management client right now?
3: Hi, good morning. Um, you know, in general, you know, what do we see? Uh, industry wide and in, in general for retail investors is, you know, the, they're, you know, they're concerned about inflation. Inflation seems to be what is top of mind as uh, continued uh, concerns about the, um, the, all the, the work that has been done with prices going up, a uh, significant amount of imbalances between demand and supply, and in general, you know, what would that do to interest rates? I think uh, when we see the, um, the data and the volatility around it, the data, you know, a lot of what uh, comes to investor's head is, well, is this going to affect earnings for companies? Is this going to be something that affects prices? And in general, how is that going to reflect in the volatility of my portfolios?
1: Well, you can just tell them, um, you know, if we start to see real inflation and the Fed turns hawkish and the dots rise, they can expect to see the 10-year yield fall.
3: Well, that seems to be what's (laughs) happening. That's crazy, right? That's just
1: insane. (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> that seems to be exactly how the markets re- you know, seem to be reacting to what, uh, what I would probably say was uh, something that the Federal Reserve tried to uh, put together last week, and in, in an effort to try to reduce the fears of inflation, they actually created more uncertainty for investors. I think a big, significant part of the tone, the hawkish tone that we all heard from Jerome Powell last week, you know, translated into more volatility around the timing of the tapering program. And I think the the markets seem to be now more comfortable thinking that the tapering will happen earlier uh, than later, uh, thinking that the Fed will be aggressive in reacting to any signs of inflation. So in a way, that that inflation discussion created a little more volatility in what we may see down the road.
0: All right. So, Omar, I guess one of the questions is, if we are going to be in a rising interest rate environment over the next several years, Is economic growth, are corporate earnings, are they strong enough to offset that? How do you feel about that?
3: Well, economic growth and earnings growth seems to be, the, for, for us, the catalyst of what may uh, offset a little bit of that volatility and inflation components. If you actually think about, you know, the numbers that we expect, even in the second quarter, uh, we're going to, you know, get to the highest possible numbers we have seen in a while. And granted that there is a base case effect, we're expecting over 60 percent year-over-year uh, EPS growth in the second quarter, which is going to be a record. Um, you know, when you put that together with a potential of, you know, um, over 7% of GDP growth in 2021, you know, we're talking about something that I don't think we have seen in a long, long time. Um, the big question in, in our minds is, you know, at what point we go through that significant move into the mid-cycle, and the deceleration of economic growth, earnings growth, is something that the market feels comfortable. So whether it's the third quarter of this year or whether it's, you know, at the end of this year when we're starting to see that deceleration and how fast that deceleration is, is this, that is. The of deceleration is what I think is going to be something for us to continue to watch.
1: If you had to put your money in one basket or another, would it be value or growth?
3: Well, I think we, we continue to tell investors that we have to be barbells. We, we, this, you know, we are in unprecedented charts, you know, in the business cycle and the economic cycles again. You know, we have never been, you know, in this situation in any you know, of these cycles before, because in a way this is not even a, a mid-cycle in the traditional sense, because we are reopening. We're still in that process of reopening. The global economy is not yet fully open, and as such, it's very hard to put a, a a component of saying, well, this is now the cyclical trade is done, and therefore we're going to go to the mid-cycle, you know, high-quality growth. So our our approach right now, until we get a little more clarity on the data, is, you know, the cyclical trade still has some room, but you got to be prepared for the next leg, which is going into the high-quality growth. So, you know, again, long way to tell you the barbell strategy seems to be the most prudent at the moment.
1: All right. Thanks so much, for joining us, Omar. Always great to get your insight. Omar Aguilar, CIO of Passive Equity and Multi-Asset Strategies at Charles Schwab
0: Investment Managers. You know, when we started Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg's in-house research, investment research business, we said, we're gonna really focus on the data because that's what Bloomberg does. It has the world-class best data and we'll let the data do the talking and our analysts make lots of great charts and graphs from that data and they tell you what's important and nobody does that better than Mike McGlone. He's got the best charts, tells fantastic stories that really make you understand what's going on in his business. Uh, And Mike joins us here because We need to talk about Bitcoin, and I'm looking at some charts here, and it's not a good chart for XBT. It's off another 9% today, Mike. So do we start looking at support levels for this type of thing, like you do with all the other commodities you follow? Is that important when you look at something like Bitcoin?
4: Yeah, Bitcoin is very technical because it's still a lot of people don't understand it. And there's a lot of traders, and a lot of them are young and inexperienced. And there's a lot of bots trading it. I mean, it's so automated. But I look at 30,000, it's pretty good support. It ended last year around 29,000. Now we might get a little dip below there just to kind of tweak out the last of the speculative excesses. But what I see here is lower prices are attracting more of the longer term buy and hold types. And it's last week, it peaked around 40000 So thirty right. to 40000 I still think it should get to 100000 this year. The key thing I'm worried about is what happened last year. Bond yields collapsing, the stock market declining, it's the macro. And if the stock market goes down and bond yields go down, Bitcoin's part of that macro. But in the big picture, what the Fed said, I think, you know, kind of tweaking things a little bit, the, 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 uh, the Fed squawk of yep. um, that, to me, is actually good in the long term for Bitcoin, like it is for gold.
1: So you think Bitcoin is more of an inflation hedge? Well, hey, Matt. It, well, 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 it's, well, I mean, here's the thing, because if the Fed starts to raise rates, Bitcoin and gold don't pay any dividends or have any kind of return like that, unless you use some funky yield farming
4: strategies. So why well ultimately it will be inflation hedge but look at gold in the last 10 years in the last 20 years it hasn't been an inflation hedge, it has been a deflation it's been working better with yields collapsing and gold is kicking in right now finally because yields the 30-year dropped below it dropped to 1.94 last night i got up yep. and i looked at it I'm like whoa so to me what's happening is it's not inflation think of what it's going to take for the fed to raise rates that's a dream right now and it's they're trying to warn us a little bit because they remember what happened last time with the taper tantrum. It's just classic Fed. They have to do that. But they're still dreaming of raising rates. And the key thing is, if the stock market doesn't go up, deflation is the main problem. You see that in most commodities, most of them peaked. Crude oil is still a little bit higher here. Yep. Copper peaked at ten thousand dollars. But I kick in. Bitcoin is, is replacing gold in portfolios in, in many cases. But it's not inflation yet. At some point, we'll get there. I didn't know when that's what that's going to take. But to me, until the stock market, until we get that past that, pay, that that period when you have a little bit of an ebbing tide, and you see here's who's wearing clothes kind of kicked in maybe a little bit last week is I fully expect gold and Bitcoin to be the two key assets wearing clothes because there's
0: still that I feel that organic and see the organic demand below the market. All right. So we did see I'm wondering like for Bitcoin, for those that don't fully understand it as a security What is it most highly correlated with, do you think? So what should people be looking at to say, gee, if bond yields go up, yeah. You know, Bitcoin's got, I mean, how should I think about so it? So how did you know what
4: I'm researching right now? On the Bloomberg portfolio okay. part, I'm, 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 I'm working on what's called port. That's our portfolio function. Yep. I'm putting Bitcoin with the bond market. And just taking a U.S. Treasury market portfolio and using Bitcoin at 10%. And a lot of people here are doing that. Ray Dalio specifically mentioned it. He'd rather old Bitcoin than bonds. It has zero correlation to most assets is a unique thing about it. Now, when markets plunge, like we did last year, everything has a high correlation to the stock market and that kicked in you saw that with crude oil saw that with bitcoin but you know now it's coming back and i think that's what people are doing looking forward okay in a gold portfolio now i have to have a little bitcoin because it's clearly replacing gold unless it fails but if that trend continues but in a in a in a in a bond portfolio it's really a nice complement. say five to ten percent going forward zero rates if we do get inflation at some point it should kick in but if you look at past performance, very low, co- low correlation, it doesn't really add to volatility in the, in the bond portfolio, but it gives you those much better returns. Now, that's past performance. Looking forward, if it just keeps doing what it has been, which I'm, too, you know, I'm not smart enough to figure when that might change, it should be a good complement. And to me, that's what's happening. Every day that goes by that it doesn't fail, it becomes more legitimate. Yeah. Is, 30, is, there, is there a material risk that Bitcoin fails? Yeah. Well, it, it lessens every day. It's some okay. kind of you have to have I have to reconsider really that because it's new technology, something, some kind of technological glitch, some kind of, you know, the issue with energy where you really point out how strong yep. it is. So every time you kind of throw something at it, you kind of get used to that. Like, OK, it knocks the price down. Then you look around like, actually, that's a positive thing for Bitcoin. So it's more some, likely
1: to be beaten than fail. Right. I mean, the, 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 well, that might happen,
4: much yeah. more likely
1: option is that Uh, the market chooses something else like Ether.
4: Well, that's the thing. And that's kind of like to say, okay, in a gold portfolio, you have to have Bitcoin, but kind of now have to have a little bit of Ethereum in that because Ethereum represents a whole building block of all DeFi and and decentralized finance, and it's all rising. By the way, I'm a little confused.
1: Well, it's not that I'm confused, but there are are, um, stories in China that are bad for Bitcoin. They're shutting down miners, apparently, and they're banning people from Accepting it and using it. So it seems like China, the government is against Bitcoin. On the other hand, people in China own more Bitcoin than people in most other countries. And all of these new unicorn businesses are popping up. I don't know if you read about a group of Morgan Stanley traders that started a company called Amber Group, which trades not only trades Bitcoin, but offers a bunch of other fintech solutions with crypto. They have now a billion dollar valuation. Um, there's a Chinese crypto lender, Babel Finance. They've raised forty million from investors like Sequoia and Tiger. Um, the, the The list goes on and on of these new startups in Hong Kong and on the mainland. Does China love Bitcoin? Is it the savior of Bitcoin or do they hate Bitcoin? Are they terrified of it?
4: Matt, what you described is very, very short-term bullish and long-term very, I'm sorry, short-term bearish, very long-term bullish. China pushing back and, and being agnostic toward Bitcoin makes a lot of sense. Authoritarian society, no free flow capital. Do not allow their citizens to have free flow capital and any other currencies outside the currency of the country. That makes a lot of sense. It's actually showing how, how the strength, how good Bitcoin is for countries like us in the rest Western world. We have free flow, free flow capital and discourse where you can exchange different currencies. So. It's a savior for a lot of Chinese citizens, so they're trying to hide it from the government, but it's also extolling the, the problem. The Chinese really going backwards the last few years and many people with President Xi, this whole concept of trying to you know, eliminate corruption, you know what that means. He's just bringing people who agree with him. So it's to me, what's happening in China is very bullish for Bitcoin. In the short term, it's miners have to leave, they have to sell because they're getting a little discombobulated, but they're moving more to more renewable sources, a lot of it in North America. Gas flare in Canada is one of the top attractions right now, and it's all going renewable anyhow because of the cost. So I look at what's happening in China. is just that's the, that's the new Cold War, and the U.S. is already winning organically.
1: All right. Mike, thanks so much. Always great to check in with you on Bitcoin. Mike McGlone
0: there, uh, Bloomberg Commodities. We've been talking about inflation a lot recently, and the market's trying to get a handle on Is it. Good inflation, or perhaps something more longer term, and if so, uh, how problematic is that for the market? Let's check in with Brian Walsh. He's a financial advisor at Walsh and Nicholson Financial Group. Brian, if I'm really concerned about valuation, I'm, I'm sorry, inflation, should I just go out and buy gold as a hedge?
5: Good morning, and thanks for having me. And, and my answer to that is no. Um, when you actually look at gold, uh, when it was supposed to work in inflationary environments. Um, in more, more recent times, it, it hasn't. Um, when you look at um, the the uh, correlation with gold to the equity market, it has increased over time. So gold is a great buffer uh, when you have a, a market sell-off, uh, like, like we had back in uh, March of last year. But when we're talking about inflation and future inflation, it has not provided a great hedging strategy. Uh, and in fact, um, we at our firm, We are more inclined to look toward uh, commodities such as sugar and wheat um, to to hedge inflation, as as it has proved this year, to work much better than gold.
1: So you think commodities also better uh, than—and
0: by the way, speaking of commodities,
1: did you look at oil just now, Yeah, um,
0: thanks for—you know, we've been looking at it this morning, but it just spiked up here. we got WTI crude oil, $72.92 an uh, ounce—a barrel— that's up a dollar twenty eight per barrel. It's up almost one point eight percent. So big move up there.
1: Yeah, Brent up one and a half percent to seventy four fifty a barrel. So big moves up in, in commodities. What about equities? Um, I wonder, Brian. Can can you make an argument for equities as a, good, as a good inflation hedge? Do you have to look at certain industry groups?
5: Yeah. So I mean, right now. There's really nowhere else to go. I mean, you have to be in the equity market. You have a supportive Fed. You have supportive um, fiscal and monetary policy. Um, fixed income isn't going to give you really anything right now. So there really is no place else to go other than the equity markets. But if you're looking to hedge inflation, um, very similar to hedging interest rates, you know you need to look at quality companies who have who have a history of increasing their dividends. Um, if you have that and you have higher commodity prices, higher inflation, higher interest rates, those types of companies will fare a lot better. Um, and when you have these high inflationary environments, these high interest rate environments, you need to have cash on hand. Um, now is not the time, in our opinion, to be barreling into gross stocks. Um, we think you need to have quality on the balance sheet, um, quality in your portfolio, and, and position accordingly for, for higher interest rates and higher in, in inflation. And, you know, short term, obviously, we're seeing what the Fed is calling a transitory inflationary move. Um, we believe that it's not transitory. We think we're going to see it continue um, through 2022 into 2023. And I think that's when you're going to start seeing it affect um, the equity markets in a, in a bigger bigger way.
0: Brian, are you, you've, you've been in this game a while here. You've got some experience. When you see valuations where they are today, when you see... You know, meme stock trading. You know, kind of the Reddit traders. When you see spacs exploding in the end of last year, beginning of this year, does that suggest to you that there's a lot of froth in this market? I better be a little bit careful.
5: Absolutely. I mean, um, there, there's no doubt about it. I've I have people calling me who have never had questions before about investments, uh, calling me asking them about AMC and GameStop and Bitcoin. So um, anytime you know, for me, I see some people. Um, you know, reaching out regarding certain things, um, y- you have to start to wonder, and uh, it's across the board. I mean, there is nothing in this marketplace right now, at, at least on the U.S. side, that is trading uh, in any capacity um, that's justified. Everything, to me, you know, is is just a lot of pent up demand, pent up cash that people want to spend, um, and you know, they're they're riding the the federal. Uh, Fed policy wave right now, and um, I, I really, I, I truly believe um, that you know the rest of this year will probably be pretty decent for equity markets. But once 2022, 2020, end of twenty twenty two comes around, uh, I think you're going to see that valuation bubble um, start to start to dissipate a little bit.
1: But nothing, just dissipate, right? Not pop. I mean, you co-founded Walsh and Nicholson in ninety one, so you've been through a real bubble. We see big tech stocks with huge valuations. You don't think this is going to be, you know, like 1999 again?
5: Well, I think it depends on where you're looking. I mean, I think um, you know some companies, um, you know, they'll fare better. I mean, I think you know when you look at Amazon, Google's, Microsofts of the world, um, you know, no, I don't think you're going to see a pop there. I mean, those are companies that have overtaken our world and overtaken our, our you know, the, the public um, interest in general. Uh, but some of these smaller um, tech companies with these crazy valuations, um, yeah, I do think you're going to see, um, you know, more of a pop there. So I think on the on the large end, large cap end of the tech market, it's more of a of a dissipating um, uh, reset versus the small and mid cap end is, is definitely going to see some uh, the brunt of the, 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 down, the downturn there.
1: All right, Brian, very cool to get your take. Thanks so much for joining us. Brian Walsh, financial advisor at Walsh.